Welcome. You're listening to another episode of AML Conversations, where we sit down with some of the brightest minds in the financial industry to explore topical matters around financial crime and compliance. We hope you enjoy this discussion and please be sure to subscribe for more. Dennis, thank you for taking time today. Uh, I know there's a lot going on. I know a lot of media people are reaching out to you and and your other colleagues uh, regarding a horrific series of events that are going on in reaction to the FBI search warrant on Mar-a-Lago. But I want to start off with the August 12th uh, DHS FBI bulletin, which I know wasn't, quote, public, but obviously the media got a hold of it, and it was shared within those agencies because of the fear, uh, not the fear, but the intelligence that shows there's been a ramping up of uh, potentially violent acts. And we certainly saw it in Cincinnati. Talk a bit about that, and then um, and then I walk us through the the process of the of the search warrant because there's been a, obviously a lot of mischaracterizations about how that works. Yeah. Well, first of all, John, thanks a lot for hosting this session because I think it's really important to get the the the, the proper information out there into the uh, community and especially the AML community that that doesn't get involved or really it doesn't have the insight into what's really going on. And so to your first question about the August 12th bulletin, that was a bulletin put out by Homeland Security and the FBI um, about the increased threat level against federal agents, uh, the FBI and, and other law enforcement um, agents. The judge in that case, for instance, who signed the search warrant um, and government facilities and and basically um you know it's 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 very concerning but the thing that scared me most and concerned me the most about that is that in february and again in june homeland security and the fbi issued um terrorist um terrorist bulletins about the threat level of terrorism and in the June bulletin specifically, they talked about uh, serious concern that trigger events, uh, certain events would come up that would be high profile, which I referred to as a trigger event, would cause um, an increase in this type of um, threat and, and increase the threat level and, and make that threat environment that much worse. So by DHS coming out in August and coming out with a new threat uh, assessment specifically to law enforcement, that tells you how serious this, this threat level is. It's more serious, and it's unlike anything I've seen before, and and it's inflamed by the rhetoric, the inflammatory rhetoric that politicians are putting out. And if you notice in the last few days, uh, over the last few days, um, voices of reason are starting to prevail a little bit, saying, hey, we need to tamp down uh, this violent rhetoric, because what it does is, and you've seen in my presentations, I talk about the radicalization process where you go from sympathizer to activist to extremist. And you've got people that are between that activist extremist level who are now listening to this rhetoric, who are becoming violent extremists. That's the serious problem that we have. And and you couple that, if I, if I just one more comment about that is that you know these threat environments, um, if you noticed in some of these threats and some of these chats, they, 
there's been a lot of talk about civil war. And to me, uh, that's a serious flag that the Boogaloo Boy movement, movement, they're trying to provoke a civil war. And when I see comments like that on on the Internet, um, especially on some of these chat boards, uh, I, I look at that as as the Boogaloo Boys and other radical extremists that verge on terrorism using this as a kind of a, as as a, 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 a starting point for them to trigger some kind of violent event. So I think it's really serious. Yeah. And so um, it's a reaction to the search warrant issued uh, against the former president and the accumulation of uh, and the numbers could be 11, 15. I don't remember how many boxes of documents were there. Talk a bit about that. And the fact that the search warrant came after an attempt to issue a subpoena and do things sort of in the normal course of the, w- the way process works in those situations. Uh, right. So talk a bit about that. And I think, unfortunately, even people that don't criticize the FBI have been using the word raid, which is pejorative, of course, and inflammatory. So talk a bit again about how this process works based on all your years uh, of the FBI when you were part of this, when you guys would have to deal with these sorts of document uh, issues. You know, well, first off, this isn't just some sort of haphazard event that that, you know, this goes beyond law enforcement in the sense that to obtain a search warrant, you have to go before a federal judge. Well, in the case of in a federal case. So the FBI is going before a federal judge. They are bringing a search warrant for him to sign. He's got to review an affidavit. That affidavit is going to have the probable cause or a statement of facts about about what what the evidence is. And it needs to deal with two things. It needs to basically um, provide probable cause that there's evidence of a crime and provide probable cause that that whatever that venue is that the search is going to take place at the evidence or evidence is there that the government can can obtain. And to the point you made before, there had been investigative steps before this um, where the government tried to obtain those records. And the first thing I'm doing when I'm talking about, I've been talking to a lot of people the last few days. My first question I pose as a question is why did former President Trump have these records in the first place? Um, This whole thing escalated. It probably didn't need to get to the point it did. But the government, and we don't know the facts, were compelled to go to court. They were compelled to go before a judge. They had to present that judge with probable cause that that was sufficient that he would sign that warrant. This isn't about politics at that point. That judge is dealing with with the laws. And, and you know, I have a lot of respect when it gets into the legal system. I have a lot of respect for the legal system. I don't agree with every case. I don't agree with the findings, uh, like if if the jury in a trial um, finds somebody innocent when I believe they were guilty. I disagree with that, but I respect the decision. And in this particular case, there was sufficient probable cause. And what I've told people, too, if you look at the backstory here, because of the sensitivity in this particular case and, and because of the fact that the approvals had to go through the highest levels of the Department of Justice, which Merrick Garland confirmed when he said he approved the search warrant in that press conference, 
that tells you um, that there was a lot of debate and a lot of discussion went into this. So it suggests to me that the government put more probable cause into the uh, affidavit than I would. If I was if I was working in a normal case and I was going for a warrant, I would only use the probable cause I thought would be sufficient for the judge to sign the warrant. And I've had many cases where the judge came back and said, agent, you need more probable cause. And, and we would provide that additional probable cause to satisfy that threshold. So um, in that case, by going to the judge, the, the FBI did everything right. They got a court order to do that. And to your point about the inference of a raid or the seizure or, you know, the, the FBI being, you know, equated to the Gestapo, you know, that's that's that inflammatory language that we talked about that's really inflaming the situation and it's totally uncalled for. Now, technically, a search warrant, because it is very intrusive, um, mm-hmm. is a form of a raid and, and it is a form of a seizure. Uh, and, and obviously, the search warrant calls for the seizure of documents. But the way that that President Trump and his um, allies have come out with that, they've twisted that where they've made it look like it was heavy handed when, in fact, it wasn't heavy handed. And, and I think those facts will play out as 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 the case develops. Right. And we've seen the case it is continuing. I mean, more information each day. Uh, there's reports today about at least 300 class documents that were listed as classified and all that. We don't have to get into all that. That stuff will play out. But uh, the the reaction to this, the violence, certainly the the clear example in Cincinnati, but in general, again, the, the rhetoric, you are the president of the uh, retired uh, FBI agents, the society. I want uh, two things. You sent a letter about the violence, a statement about the violence, and then you also sent a letter to society members. Tell us a bit about what the themes were in there. And also, what is the society? What is its mission? Obviously, again, retired agents. So you want to keep people up to date on information and that sort of thing. I assume presentations and conferences and that. that. But tell us a bit about that. And obviously, you've been involved for a number of years, but now now you're president of the organization. So yeah. talk about that. So um, I'll give you a quick overview of the society first and then what, what we talked about or what we did. So the society was formed in 1937. There was about 120 agents at the time or former agents who formed the society. Um, today, we have 8,500 members and 120 chapters around the country. And, and basically, the society was formed as a as a nonprofit fraternal organization, and it's to promote um, you know the well-being of our members and and to support our members, and and to support law enforcement and and more specifically to support the FBI and to be there to provide whatever assistance we can in any form we can to the FBI. And we also have a foundation, which is a 501c3, which basically provides, you know, we, 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 we make contributions to it and uh, former agents in need, their families in need, we help them. We have a scholarship fund. So we do a lot of good beneficial work, not to mention we also do advocacy. You know, as you know, uh, you and I have been involved in advocacy on the Hill regarding beneficial ownership. So I did that in part for years 
on on the behalf of the uh, society and we advocate in cases where agents have been killed and and you know when those um when the killers go to jail we 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 track those um sentences and when they come up for parole or they come up uh, like in the case of Leonard Peltier who killed two agents on the Indian reservation. Um, and, and he continuously asks, requests pardons from the president, and he continuously um, petitions for parole. And we obviously fight that very strenuously. So we do things like that. So the, our membership um, takes a lot of pride in the FBI family. And we uh, we monitor our members and, and our members talk about what their concerns are. And obviously the inference that the FBI has been politicized or it's it's got to, you know, here the way they've lumped some cases together um, and they've made it sound as if the FBI um, has a political vendetta against former President Trump and, and you know, they favored him versus Hillary versus Hunter Biden, those cases are all different. They need to be treated differently. Uh, but, but you know, so we voice those concerns to the, um, to the FBI, to the director, to the deputy director. I talk to them and, and, you know, we go through those types of things. They understand, they get a pulse of what our members' concerns are, and especially here in a case like this. Uh, so I put out, um, to, to, to your point, which I shared with you, um, a couple of um, uh, notes, basically. I put out a letter to specifically to our members that that we have to wait for the facts to come out. We can't make a statement. We need to let the facts play out and let the situation evolve. Um, before making any statement. But what I think it's in our responsibility is to stand behind the integrity of the agents. I think that's important that, you know, until proven otherwise, um, and, and I haven't seen anything to suggest that anything went wrong, because the other thing that concerns me is former President Trump claiming that evidence was planted. And then a few of his um, um, friends uh, in the Republican Party have have echoed those sentiments. And, and that's a terrible thing because you're undermining the integrity of the premier law enforcement agency in the world. And and that's just unacceptable. More importantly, to the point you said in in our in our um, in my notices to our members and and to the general public and to the media, basically, was any threat of violence is unacceptable. And we need to tone down the rhetoric and, and we need to address those serious threats. And, and going back to your first question about the bulletins, to me, uh, the threat is a lot worse than people, you know, they hear the word threat. And I don't know that people take it as serious as it should be taken. Yeah, you know, um, obviously over time and throughout your career, you, uh, when you were an agent and, and moved up through the ranks, there was definitely extremists on the far left, whether underground and groups like that, that committed violent acts. But I don't, and there may have been a, a, an isolated Congress person here or there that was on, the, on that side, right, if you will. But I've never seen this many quote unquote policymakers uh, so quickly uh, attack uh, an agency like your your former agency or the IRS, frankly, uh, and that's really disheartening. I, I would imagine to the current agents uh, of the FBI, current staff of the FBI, just 
as it is for uh, those men and women at the at the IRS. And so it, it must really be uh, difficult and challenging to, to think a couple things. One is you're trying to do your job. You're obviously are public servants that are, are doing their best to investigate, you know, financial crime, uh, violent crimes, what have you. And you have not only people looking over your shoulder, but you have people attacking without any information. It's just based on, again, not even rhetoric. And, and you know, you're right. There have been some voices recently that have said, you know, basically step back, but not enough. You know, the governor of Florida just this morning continued his attacks on the FBI. And, and again, not to be political, because, again, we, we certainly have had a history in the past where the far left has been accusatory toward the FBI. But again, elected officials, I've never seen it. And that really has to be uh, something that the, your former colleagues on a day-to-day -day basis, it really must be both emotional and more than challenging. Uh, and I know the retired agents, obviously, like yourself, are connected with your former uh, colleagues. Just in general, anecdotally, what are what are they saying to you other than putting their heads down and doing their job, which which is of course their mission? But there must be a frustration. Yeah, um, I think John, thank you for that um, that observation, and and it's true. Anybody that would be in that situation, you know, would would seriously be frustrated. Um, I, I think that the agents, the morale is good. The agents have put their head down and and have gone forward. They've got to continue to do what they do on a daily basis. They, you know, we all. When I was an agent, when I first became an agent, I took an oath of office um, to protect the American public and and also to to you know to stand up and defend the Constitution. And the agents today take that same oath and they take that very serious. So in spite of the noise around us, they're going to continue to do that on a daily basis. But again, part of the society, I've gotten uh, emails from SACs and field offices based on a note I put out supporting the Bureau and supporting and, and saying, hey, we can't tolerate any type of um, violence and we've got to tone down this rhetoric. So they pay attention to these things and they appreciate that. And, and you know, so, you know, from the public standpoint, the, the, the more public support that, that they see um, is, is a good thing, you know, because um, the loud voices, the noise, they gain all the attention, but that's really in the re in the grand scheme of things, that's a minority of people who are doing that. You know, the the, the majority of people are behind um, behind the investigation and behind the FBI, and I think the agents understand that. So, um, I, I think that you know that's important. And so, and just uh, one more th one yeah, more point ahead. on yeah, that, please, if I may, please, which ahead. I I find galling, is some of the rhetoric you just talked about Governor DeSantis, you know, and they have ulterior motives, obviously. And and so they get their soundbite, but they get their soundbite at the expense of inflaming the rhetoric and the radicalization. And it's going to cause violence and that needs to stop. And and just the analogy with with Senator uh, um, Scott, where where he likened the FBI to the Gestapo, he's either just clueless or he has no idea what the Gestapo was. And and you know that to to to, to put the FBI 
the IRS or any federal U.S. agency in a class with that is a disgrace. It, it's an absolute disgrace because the Gestapo was a secret police. The FBI is not a secret police. The Gestapo was a terrorist uh, entity. You know, the IRS, the FBI, none of those agencies are that. And I know the IRS is getting their share of 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 hits as well, which are totally undeserved. Yeah, let me get you out of here on this. Um, what can we do as uh, the private sector, AML community, uh, financial crime prevention community, sanctions community, besides the obvious, you know, when we hear friends and neighbors at a cookout make ridiculous comments to reply with facts, what else can we be doing to make sure that we have the backs of the men and women in all these law enforcement agencies that are being unfairly uh, attacked, to say the least? I would say take a step back and understand that these agencies, the IRS, the FBI, Homeland Security Investigations, they all have tremendous integrity. And, and of course, you know, there are going to be agents within there that are bad apples. And I mean, that's just the way it is. But by and large, the rank and file, the executives are all there. They take their oath. They take it seriously. So my recommendation is just like you would conduct due diligence on negative news, take a step back and assess that negative news. Um, I, you know, I have that's I'm going to write an article about this, about how to how do you assess that much better? And and, you know, there's objective criticism. There's there's defensive criticism. And that's what we're seeing with Trump and his allies, the defensive criticism. And 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 that is not objective. And and that's the bad stuff. And then there's there's the other uh critical um the agenda driven uh criticism, which is what Governor DeSantis was doing, uh which other and what what Scott was doing and other people like that. So you need to take a step back and consider what's the source of the information and who's the critic. Is it credible? or non-credible. And, and when you do that, I think, you know, and you give the facts a chance um, to, 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 to get developed uh, and not jump to a conclusion, uh, that, that to me, that's the best thing that people can do. Dennis Lermel, former head of TFOS, president of the uh, retired foreign uh, FBI agents. Thank you so much for this and we will continue uh, as as the community to make sure that the facts continue to get out. And obviously, um, I hope that uh, your your colleagues and every everybody else stay safe. So thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you, John. Thanks for the platform. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of AML Conversations brought to you by AML Right Source. To make sure you're staying up to date with what's going on in the industry, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to get the latest episode.